Well, it's the end of a long day, and sometimes there's the impulse to uh, to sleep. So the fact that you've chosen to stay awake, uh, anyway, I appreciate it. it. Allows me to to hang around with you in the in the the Dharma soup, just be together and see what happens. I particularly liked Linda's comments about 45 minutes doing what I think you said absolutely nothing and the fact that you're here doing another 45 minutes of absolutely nothing. What I really liked about it is she said that after a while you feel a feeling of generosity or in many cases we'll feel a feeling of of goodwill, kindness. And even though it seems like absolutely nothing, I like to think of our practice as as, uh, bowing down to to reality, bowing down to life, a, a kind of act of devotion, serving, you could say serving the divine. And When I look back at my own practice, I feel as though I have been serving, I'll just use that word again, serving the divine now for a long time. And I didn't always, I used to, what it felt like as I was serving myself. I was just, it was all about me and mine and my ambitions or what I wanted to have happen and this and that. But then I did that strange thing of sitting down and doing absolutely nothing for, for uh, cumulatively an intensive practice probably more than three years. And three years of cumulatively doing seemingly absolutely nothing, I became a servant. I became, I, I started to, instead of working for me, I started working for reality, working for life, working for, working for truth, working for goodness, working for wisdom, uh, work, working for compassion. And just as one of my teachers said, Anagarika Munindra, he said, the Dharma which is another way of talking about the divine or truth or the way things are or the teachings of of, of purity, of purification of actions, purification of mind, purification of view, that the Dharma takes care of those who take care of the Dharma. And I have to say, and I think anyone who's practiced a long time and given themselves over as an act of devotion to the Dharma, would likely say that the Dharma takes care of you, that you have been to some degree um, enriched, not always materially, but enriched in a way that you feel supported, that you feel as though uh, that you have enough, and, and that, life, that life takes care of you in some way. And of course, we, ha- we have from time to time 
places in our psychology that, or places in our, our karma or past conditions that lead us to, to maybe even for sustained periods to have a deep mistrust of life, that it really maybe doesn't take care of us. But I think if anyone really serves truth, serves the Dharma, aligns themselves, works for the Dharma as their means of support, instead of working for money, or working to be loved, or working for all the various things that, that are, that are uh, sometimes more about me, more about mine, working for acquisition, those who work for the Dharma tend to be supported. And I have a feeling that I could probably get a lot of stories uh, that uh, substantiate my, my hunch. And if we don't have the trust in the Dharma, trust in the truth, trust in the, the fruits and the benefits and the, um, the, the um, capacity of life to really support us, if we don't have that trust for whatever reason, it's coming to sit that helps us reclaim that, help us, helps us recover, helps us start to gain some faith and confidence that uh, there's something fundamentally good, okay, about reality that we can taste in any moment, that we can use as our, as our um, nutriment. And it really is that dropping through, dropping out of the realm of, slowly dropping out of the realm of discursive thinking, out of the realm of the imagined past and the imagined future, touching slowly with the support of others, touching reality in its simplicity, really feeling the way, this is hard to put into words, feeling the way that you are actually being lived, that you are being breathed, that you have never ever been apart from reality, you've never been apart from, in, in the deepest way, you've never been apart from complete sustenance, except for where our mind has, uh, has lost its, um, its connection with that. So all the wisdom teachings point us to sitting down, doing absolutely nothing for as long as it takes until you realize that you are being lived, until you quite naturally become a servant um, devoted to, uh, to the Dharma, to the truth, to the way things are. I was, uh, whenever I see Ghadars who sits with us, I... I think of um, Hafez, the, the Persian uh, poet. And uh, I pulled out a Hafez quote tonight that I think really speaks to what happens when you give yourself over. He says, I've learned so much from the divine. 
and that we can exchange the word the, the Buddha nature, truth, the way things are, Dharma. I've learned so much from the Dharma. I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Jew. The truth has shared so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman, an angel, or even pure soul. Love has befriended me so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and image my mind has ever known. When our mind is freed momentarily from every concept and image we have ever known, and that really is the function of a moment of mindful attention, we step beyond the world of separation and touch into uh, the, the living Dharma, the living support, that which lives inside of you and lives inside of me, that which drives everything. I've talked about it other nights as passion, of desire, as life, as, as the Dharma. And when we take care of that Dharma, uh, it takes care of us. And it's very easy to, to, um, uh, to lose our... Um, it's very easy to cheat on the Dharma. Because we have lots of competing desires. When I say cheat on the Dharma, I think in terms of a relationship. You're married to someone and you, and you go astray. And there are, there are countless things that we can put our attention on and that, that captivate us. How long can we spend doing absolutely nothing before we pick up our little screen and check our email? check our messages, or have to text somebody, or have to hear some music, or fill our mind with something. This is, it's in a sense, not just cheating the Dharma, it's cheating ourselves of that, that sustenance. So we have to hang out long enough to really get the, the beauty of doing absolutely nothing. I just came from leading a retreat in, uh, in British Columbia, and I have all kinds of projections on the Canadians. I'll just admit it right now. <laughs> but they seem, they seem, and I, of course you can't generalize, and that's why they'll really sound like a projection to you. They seem more chilled out than we are. How about the hockey players? <laughs> he said, how about the hockey players? Maybe not. By and large... They seem, and I think it may be a function of the fact that they have universal health care. They're, they're less anxious about, they have less of a, they've got more of a floor under them. So I'm not sure what the conditions are that make it possible, but they, they take time. They, they have, they take space. They do not seem as compulsive, as obsessive, as anxious, as busy as we are. And the fruit of it is that they so easily uh, are kind and generous and just unpretentious. And it seems so unqualified. It seems so un... It seems so much not born of fear. It seems just genuine. And I'm not saying that all of you aren't the same way, but I think that we have many more competing impulses in our minds to, to be a little more shut down, a little more fearful, a little bit um, 
feeling less supported. And so, for us, it may be more challenging to have that trust in life, to really trust the Dharma, to let the Dharma, to, to take care of the Dharma so that it takes care of us. So we have to especially make sure that we are, are vigilant about taking time and just letting ourselves cook, letting ourselves marinate in immediacy and peace so that the Dharma just saturates us to the point where we step beyond the, the, the torment of our own discursive thoughts and feel the, the sense of sustenance that's there feeding us really every moment that we can so easily miss. This is from the Native American tradition, a poem called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are, wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. Listen. The forest breathes, it whispers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here. No two trees are the same to ravens, no two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, then you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are, and you must let it find you. From Thoreau, I thought this was a, um, a very sweet reminder. And this may seem like a real luxury to you when you hear something like this, but I think it's, we have to do it anyway, even if it's a luxury, even if, you, even if you lose a few bucks. Anyway, here it is. It's called Addendum. There was a time when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or hand, I love a broad margin to my life. Sometime in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and hickories and sumacs, in undisturbed solitude and stillness while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house until by the until by the sun falling in at my west window or the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I realize what the Orientals mean by contemplation and the forsaking of works. For the most part, I minded not how the hours went. The day advanced as if to light some work of mine. It was morning and low, now it was evening, and nothing memorable is accomplished. Instead of singing like the birds, I silently smiled at my incessant good fortune. 
as the sparrow had in its had its trill sitting on the hickory before my door so i had my chuckle or suppressed warble which he might hear out of my nest so he also said from doing absolutely nothing he said i'm grateful for what i am and what i have my thanksgiving is perpetual it's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite only a sense of existence oh how i laugh at my vague indefinite riches for no run on my bank can drain it for my wealth is not possession but enjoyment of being so how did we get so far away from that we're not really so far away from it as you may discover on tuesday night or whenever you sit and do absolutely nothing now we're calling it absolutely nothing tonight but it is really everything as uh, as Kala Rinpoche said he says you live in illusion and the appearance of things this whole massive world there is a reality you are that reality and when you understand this you will see that you're nothing but being nothing you are everything that is all and the way shri nisargadatta maharaj puts it he says love tells me i'm everything wisdom tells me i'm nothing between these two my life flows so how do we know that we have to know it intimately directly we can't just know it as an idea that may make us smile or may get a little moment of resonance we have to know it through and through and that's what gives us confidence and faith in the dharma that's what lets us no matter whether we have solved the riddle of our life all our questions fixed our situation found the best relationship whatever it is it allows us to 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 feel whole independent of our circumstances that's what so that to me that's what we're doing here tonight and just in the in the same spirit of using the language of doing absolutely nothing it seems like the appropriate time to read Amy Krauss Rosenthal again this is all just trying to hammer in the point just stop once in a while okay i know you're here tonight and so i'm preaching to the choir but I, do it anyway amy krauss rosenthal says how have you been busy how is work busy how is your week good busy you name the question busy's the answer Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my home. I'm itchy. Yet, busy stands alone. 
as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? I have a hunch that there's a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of business. Look at us, we're all pros now at hailing cabs, making copies, carpooling, performing surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answer to almost every question, what did you do at school today? What's new was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. <laughs> then somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180 degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try reintroducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing. I say it a few times and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zenish, nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond. Nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? So an article I stumbled on when I was rummaging through the folders tonight was, uh, I don't even know who the author is. It was a reprint from something in the, oh, from a fellow named Mark Lesser. And this was a business-oriented article, but I thought it was very telling, just the first paragraph. And the title of the article was, The Courage to Do Less. You don't hear that you very often, do you? The art of doing less isn't merely about becoming more productive employees or business people, though doing less of what is unnecessary may result in greater productivity. The true benefit of focusing on and taking a break from busyness is that it brings more kindness and love into our lives. With less busyness and unnecessary effort, more kindness and love can rise to the surface leading to more energy, focus, and ease. It's worth pointing out that the opposite seems true as well. In our increasingly busy and impatient world, people seem to be less kind and patient with each other. Much of that seems to stem from busyness itself and from the increasing attitude that being polite and caring is just another, another form of wasting time. So here is a, a little reflection that I found in an advertisement for an, an artist's prints. One sits by the river with no purpose just to sit and be with nowhere to go and nothing to think about. One watches all the subtle activities of the forest and water, listens to all the little sounds, feels with all the senses. The mind is empty, body is fully alive, 
In this state, mind and body melt into life and there is no separation. It is an absolute union, our primary, our primal and primary nature. So you get this message over and over. Stop, keep quiet, look within. Because this is what allows us to step out of the tangle of our personality view, our story of ourself. It's always telling us that something is telling us in the form of the various hindrances that flow through our mind, I have to have something else. I have to get rid of something. I'm worried. I'm restless. I'm exhausted. And I'm doubtful. The five hindrances. The story of me is the story of lack. And when we touch that present simplicity, there is no lack. And there is no self. There is just the suchness of everything. And it's a split second away. And if you bow to this, devote yourself to this dharma, it takes care of you. The dharma takes care of those who take care of the dharma. And these, this personality view, the self-view that's got lack, it drives even meditation practice sometimes. It says, my practice is not enough. I'm not awake enough. I'm not alive enough. I'm not present enough. I'm not concentrated enough. I'm not compassionate enough. I'm not loving enough. Even the personality view, even the meditative personality view, the identity of meditator, the identity of seeker, tends to keep, uh, tends to generate a kind of restlessness of mind. And I think, you know, at the end of my three years of practice, cumulative of the intensive practice periods, the kind of first thrust of, my, of a lot of the intensive practice I did, I had learned a lot, but I, was, I still hadn't really looked at, at the, some of the subtle, not that this is an endless process of looking at the subtle ways of this self-idea and the, the view of lack presents itself moment by moment, but I realized that I hadn't looked at a certain level where even the identity of seeker was preventing me from really touching into that, that nutriment of, of the Dharma. And I, as many of you know, I went to see a teacher named H.W.L. Punja. And I was so intent on awakening that I just wanted nothing else in my life at that moment. And everything else had fallen away, I, even though there was a tremendous devotion to truth and to the Dharma. But there was also some little angst that was, that was driving it. And I went to this teacher just so full of, of knowing that I wanted to be, I wanted to be free. I wanted to, that, that deepest possible connection that I wanted to give myself over to, to life. And I had been reflecting on this passage that's often used in, in many different traditions, uh, having to do with the seeker, and the, the passage is, the seeker and the sought are one. So I knew I was just looking for myself. The seeker and the sought are one. 
And so I went to this teacher in India who had this amazing way of, of pulling the rug out from under your, any kind of ego trips that you had going on. And in my first conversation with him, five minutes with him, he asked me why I had come to see him. And I said to him, well, I know that the seeker and the sought are one, but I've come halfway around to, to the world to see you, so I must want something. And he looked at me very intently, and he said, remove the seeker and remove the sought. And the moment I heard those words, I went completely unconscious. Something he said pushed me past this whole identity of seeker that I didn't even realize was so calcified. And the whole idea of some place to seek, even myself, was another idea. And I went completely unconscious and the next thing I knew there was this laugh coming from, from somewhere. And the laugh woke me out of, brought me back into consciousness. And the laugh was coming out of my own mouth. And then the whole world at that moment proceeded to just dissolve like, the, like in the movie Matrix. Any of you see the movie Matrix? And then my mind went dead silent. And I really felt that I, I really saw that, <laughs> that I was what I was searching for. And it was the very consciousness through which I was perceiving was the, was the, was the, the end, in a way. And that, that whole seeker identity just vanished. And every moment that... I, I truly believe this, that every moment that we are simply being with life as it is, we drop that. We drop whatever identity it is that keeps us in that sense of not being supported, keeps us from that sense of, um, of being plugged in, you could say, to the uh, inexhaustible current of the Dharma and love and compassion and discernment and wisdom, all of that flows from stepping out of our, our ego houses. And that happens moment by moment. So remove the seeker and remove the sot. Let's just sit for a little bit. Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, 
you are really in search of yourself without knowing it. You are love, longing for the love-worthy, the perfectly lovable. Due to ignorance, you are looking for it in the world of opposites and contradictions. When you find it within, your search will be over. May all beings take care of the Dharma. May the Dharma take care of all those who take care of the Dharma. May all beings be free. May all beings live with ease. And may our practice tonight and every night and every day be devoted to, be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your generosity. Please be mindful as you transition. Love being with you. And oh, I wanted to just give a little sneak uh, preview or reminder of the day long I'm doing at Spirit Rock, a whole day on loving the house that Ego built on August 24th. So come one, come all, and I hope to see you next week as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.